Today, we're looking at the topic of parents and teenagers. But it's really applicable to all of youth and all parents, parents and teens. Now, the church in America, as you probably know, is in decline. And it has been for a good 70 years. And the Pew Research Center, uh, I was given this by one of our deacons here this week, the Pew Research Center did some study and research on how much it's declined even in the last 10 years. Now, the greatest generation, those born before 1928, church attendance is about 56%. That's pretty high considering their age, about 56%. The silent generation, 1928 to 1945, it's about 44%. The boomer generation, that's what I'm a part of, 1946 to 64, church attendance, this is on a weekly basis. They say they go weekly, is about 32%. The Gen Xers, the Gen X generation, 1965 to 1980, it's about 27%. The millennial generation, those born 1981 and on, church attendance is about 18%. So it dropped, and now the new study shows that it's dropped significantly in each one of those categories even more since this study was done in 2010. Now the millennials is down to 11%. Uh, Baby boomers is 21%, so it's dropping. And not surprisingly, it's things going on in our culture. And the younger generation is being lost from the church. There's no other way around it. It's true across the board. Denominations, independent churches. He has another sad marker here. Those who identify as LGBTQ. The traditionalists, those over the age of 74, only 1.3%. Baby boomers, 56 to 74, it's 2%. Generation X, 40 to 55, identify as LGBT, 3.8%, still pretty low. Millennials, age 24 to 39, 9.1%. And the Gen Z, which is 18 to 23, the youngest group of adults now identify as 16% as being LGBTQ. So you can see the rapid spike in that as church attendance goes down. We're only one generation away from losing the faith in America or any other place for that matter. We realize that, so it's important for parents and grandparents to instruct their children. And, and that's not easy to do. We recognize that. It's not, it's not a small task. Let's look to, at the scriptures together here this morning. I'm not a parenting expert, but I am a parent. I'm simply just a parent. And in my experience, I have observed at least three common disorders which can afflict the parent-teen relationship. They can be summarized into three categories. Media, materialism, and mobility. Media, materialism, and mobility. Now, that may seem to you like, Pastor, you're oversimplifying the problem that parents face. I don't think so. These disorders, I'm going to look at them as disorders. These disorders must be administered with frequent rounds of truth by the administering parent if they're to develop healthy, responsible, 
spiritual adults. So I've entitled my message this morning, Loving Parents Make Tough Decisions. Loving Parents Make Tough Decisions. We don't sometimes like to do that, but it's incumbent upon us because of the position that we hold. So let's talk about that idea. First thing, we're talking about these disorders. The first one is parental inferiority complex. Parental inferiority complex. I had Pastor Hamilton read a moment ago uh, about Samson's parents, Manoah, his wife is unnamed in the scriptures. But the angel of God, a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, comes to first Manoah's wife and says, you're going to have a special child. Here's some rules I want you to observe in raising this child. She's overwhelmed, and she tells her husband about it. And they pray and ask God for more direction, more help. And the man of God appears again. The angel of God appears to them and says, no razor shall come upon his head. He's, you're not to drink uh, wine uh, while you're pregnant, and he's never to drink wine throughout his whole life. He's going to be a Nazarite. And you can see the fear in Manoah and his wife's life at this situation that they are confronted with by the angel of God. Samson's parents were given a responsibility by God. Every parent is given a responsibility by God, a task from God, and they were overwhelmed by it. And in addition to that, Samson was a difficult child, by the way. Samson was a difficult child. Matter of fact, we call it the law of first mention in the Bible. The first thing that comes out of a person's mouth that's recorded in Scripture is often indicative of their entire life. Remember what Samson, the law of first mention, the first words that came out of Samson's mouth were to his parents that's recorded in Scripture was, get me that woman, I want her. And that characterized his whole life till his dying day. So he was a difficult child, and the truth of the matter was the future of the nation of Israel was tied intricately with this child. We could draw some analogies for every parent. Every parent faces difficult tasks as given to them by God. Every parent has a challenging child. The future of the nation is coming upon us as we rear our children. We recognize that. Parental inferiority complex, most parents have a natural sense of inadequacy in this matter of parenting. Let's just admit it. Because we didn't earn a degree in this subject. We haven't done extensive research on this subject. We haven't written a lot of papers on parenting. I remember both my wife and I came from unsaved families. My parents weren't Christian. Starry's parents weren't Christian. When we got saved, after we got married, and we found out we were going to have a child, we said, we got to do some reading because we don't want to rear our kids exactly the way our parents reared us. So we began to do some reading, but none of us feel like we're up to the task Plus, our society exasperates the problem, pushing an anti-family narrative. Last week, I mentioned to you the Black Lives Matter, which we've heard a whole lot about the last 15 months or so. And on their website, one of their goals was to destroy the nuclear family, families like probably represented by most of us here today. And then I quoted to you from the research from the National Council on Family Relations, which took place a week ago. 
and it's funded by your taxpayer dollars. And they said the nuclear family is full of white supremacy. The nuclear family, a mother, a father with children, is advancing the white agenda, and it must be interrupted and knocked down. That's from the National Council on Family Relations. So we realize we're living in a culture and a society that is working against us as parents. Plus, you add to that, we know we're imperfect sinners ourselves. Every parent understands his own sin nature, and we're trying to positively influence the next generation to do better maybe than we did. David says in Psalm 51, verse 5, in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not talking about adultery there. He's talking about his sin nature that was passed on from his mother and his father. David is saying, I was a sinner from birth. I was a sinner from the time I came out of the womb. We recognize that as parents, we're trying to raise decent kids, good kids, godly kids, but they don't always see a perfect example living it out in front of them. So awareness of our own failures, imperfections, and ignorance is only heightened sometimes by psychology and our society, the media that is all around us to discredit our parenting credentials and really our parental mandate, our parental responsibility and authority. You see bumper stickers like this, question authority, or believe the children. What is that implying? Maybe not implying, it's just saying. It's saying that authority figures are liars, and that smart youth should listen to what they had to say with a big question mark in their mind. The young people should look at that and not trust authority figures. I think everybody here, if you listen to the news at all or you're aware what's going on in America, is aware that the critical race theory, CRT, is being taught in public schools across America. Critical race theory, which is, is the whole idea that Kids are to go home and confront their parents about their white privilege and systemic racism. Now, has America had racism in the past? Certainly it has. I preached a message on why racism is wrong and Christians shouldn't have any part to do with it. But systemic racism where they're taught to uh, confront their parents and they're to renounce their whiteness and all the other things that go along with it. You're facing an uphill battle today in society in doing child rearing. So as Christian parents, we must freely acknowledge our own personal insufficiency in child rearing as in so many other areas of life. The Bible implores us to prayerfully seek God's wisdom in this task. James chapter 5 verse 1 says, if any man lacks wisdom, and who doesn't lack wisdom when it comes to child rearing and raising you? If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally or generously. We ask for that wisdom so we can apply it. 
We're to be constantly asking God for help and asking God for wisdom in this child-rearing process and to ask God for his working in our child's heart. Psalm 127 verse 1 says this, Any man who builds the house labors in vain, and he who watches from the wall watches in vain. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain. Except the Lord is present with the watchman. When it says house, by the way, it's not talking about building a physical house. It's like the house of Windsor, the family line. If you want to build a godly family line, you have to ask God for wisdom. You have to turn to God constantly. God, build this family of mine. Enable me to rear these children for your glory. So we must resist the world's attempt to undermine parental wisdom and parental authority. As parents, we may not have all the answers, but God does. God's word does. Everything that we need for life and godliness is available to us, Peter says. Admit to your children, hey, I don't have all the answers, but I I'm a seeker, and I'm, I'm looking to God for help, and I want to be the best parent I possibly can be. Admit that to your children. But realize that God has given you a sacred trust. You have God-given authority as a parent. Don't relinquish that. Hollywood as well makes a concerted effort to subvert your effectiveness by perverting your children's perception of parenthood it does it twists it it maligns it it subverts it so if hollywood is doing that do not undermine your family by allowing the enemy to propagandize your own children don't allow the enemy to propagandize your own children and there's a myriad number of examples I was thinking about this, and one is the TV show, The Simpsons. The Simpsons, I look at it, it's in its 32nd season. 700 episodes where it features dopey dads, domineering mothers, and sarcastic kids. That's exactly what Hollywood is doing. It is propagandizing the youth of America to have a twisted caricature of what the nuclear family, or at least a biblical family, should look like. Don't allow them to do that. The first disorder is parental inferiority complex. The second one is privilege expectancy syndrome, I'm saying. Turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. You're quite familiar if you've been in church with this story. It's one of the most well-known stories that Jesus gave to us. Luke chapter 15. I'm going to begin reading at verse 11. It's the story of the prodigal son. It says, Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the portion of my goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there he wasted his possessions with profligate, prodigal living. But when he had spent all, 
There arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And then he went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed his swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, because no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, wait a minute, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And here I am perishing with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, and when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and he ran and he fell upon his neck and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring here the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us be merry. For this my son was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and he's now found, and they began to be merry. I'm calling this second problem, the second disorder, privilege expectancy syndrome, which is personified in the story that Jesus gave us here. This young man said to his father, I want my goods. I, I want my inheritance, and I want it now. I don't want to keep working on the farm. I'm going to go have a good time. And his father amazingly does that gives him the money, and he takes off, wastes it all, and wastes his life. This is going to make me sound very old-fashioned, but kids today routinely receive money, toys, and cars, and other exorbitant privileges, often without learning the two important lessons that go with those things. Now, I'm not trying to be ogrely here. But there are some lessons. First lessons, privileges can be unappreciated when they're unearned. Privileges, blessings, good things can be unappreciated when they're unearned. Second, all privileges carry corresponding personal responsibilities. So if you give your children or your young people certain privileges, things, they may be cars, they may be almost adult toys, or they may be money without helping them understand that these things are earned. Even if they weren't earned by you, they were earned by me, and they carry responsibility. Then you're doing them a disservice. You're doing them a disservice. The sacrifices of our parents and grandparents for our benefit when forgotten or unappreciated have grown into malignant tumors in younger generations, full-blown tumors. I have often thought of how much better off from a physical standpoint, let alone spiritual, I have it than my parents did. My dad had to quit school in the eighth grade to work on the farm. I don't know how long my grandfather even went to school. I don't think it was to the eighth grade. They were farmers. We lived 11 people in a house with one bathroom. We always shared a bed with at least one brother. Lots of times it was two. We didn't have nice clothes. 
I didn't have a pair of dress shoes except for Sundays, and they were always hand-me-downs. I never wore them to school. Once we got into junior high, we got a pair of tennis shoes. We couldn't play sports because Dad needed all, all the boys home on the farm doing chores and working in the fields. But I still had it much better off than my parents did or than my grandparents did. I've had the privilege of going to college and getting an engineering degree and getting two Bible degrees and getting a doctorate. My parents never dreamed of that kind of thing. I've had the privilege of traveling the world. I have a house with four bathrooms in it, and there's only two of us. Wished I could ship some of those bathrooms back when we we're standing in line to get in there. So many opportunities. We have it so much better, most of us, I think, we would say, than our parents and certainly than our grandparents in a material way. Privileges and blessings always carry incumbent responsibilities. And the more we understand that, the better off we are. I think it was Dr. Bob Sr. that used to say, when the fire of gratitude dies out on the altar of a man's heart, he is well nigh hopeless. In other words, a person that has no gratitude for what they've inherited, for what is theirs, the privileges and blessings that they enjoy, that person is worthless. He's well nigh hopeless. Because gratitude is such an important virtue to, to develop into our children changes their perspective. Certainly that's true of salvation. Salvation is free for us, but it costs God's dear son, his only son, his life as he died on the cross to purchase our redemption. We don't ever want to lose gratitude for our salvation, but we don't want to ever lose gratitude for what our parents have done for us and even our grandparents to some degree. So our youth must understand that as the recipients of so many blessings, they must be thankful and they must be careful not to take a flippant attitude towards them, a light attitude towards them. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, to whom much is given, much is going to be required. We're to be stewards. We're to be stewards of all that we've received. And those of us who've received more will answer to God in a more severe judgment, we would say, because we've received more. The second problem that we face is privilege expectancy syndrome. Don't allow your children to assume that it's all going to be theirs or it all comes to them naturally. Don't allow them to just assume that these privileges just flow from your hand. Recently, I did a funeral for a wealthy family, and the three children were not speaking to each other because they didn't like who was going to be the executor of the will, and they were not speaking because they didn't feel they got a fair shake. Unfortunately, you don't have to be wealthy to have that happen. When your children assume that they're going to receive it all, and it's the entitlement mentality. You're doing them a disservice. We must teach them privileges are earned. We can start with that early. Staying up late, that's a privilege that's earned. Or 
or having friends over, that's a privilege that's earned. Or borrowing the car, that's a privilege that's to be earned. Have them pay for a portion of their college expenses. Don't give your kids an allowance. Pay them for the work that they do. That was easy growing up on the farm. There was always plenty of work. I had to invent things for my kids to do. Boy, you listen to them when they get together. He said, Dad, you made us crawl on our knees all around the fence, and we had to cut the grass with those clippers, and our hands hurt so bad. I thought, I, I did that? They said, sure you did that. I thought, good, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I didn't think I was that tough on you. We used to invent chores. Pay them for work. Help them pay a portion of their college expenses. By the way, working students learn to manage their time better, and on average, they get better grades because they become better stewards of their time. I've often said, I would rather leave my children in poverty. I don't think that's going to happen for either of them. But I would rather leave my children in poverty with a fear of the Lord than to make them millionaires and ignorant of the gospel, not living for God. When you weigh it, the spiritual value has so much more value than monetary value. Let's keep our priorities right in training our children. The third disorder, premature autonomy disorder is what I'm calling it. We're looking at it almost like medical terms. Premature autonomy disorder. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. You recognize Exodus 20. It's the, it's the Ten Commandments chapter. And verse 12 says, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thou might live long upon the earth. The Bible teaches, that's a command with a promise attached to it, that if we honor our parents, we are submissive to them, we show respect to them, we serve them, we exalt them to some degree, maybe we would say, that we will live long upon the earth. That's a general promise. But honor thy father and thy mother, that you may live long upon the earth. Now, my next statement's going to seem draconian to probably many here, especially the young people. So I'm setting you up. Automotive independence has contributed more to the promiscuity amongst young people than probably any other factor in history, modern history. Automotive independence has probably promoted sexual promiscuity amongst young people probably more than any other factor in modern history. Let me put some context to this. I have worked with young people almost my entire ministry. I was a youth pastor for a number of years. Then I became a singles pastor. Then, of course, I was an assistant pastor working with youth as well. I've taught in children's church for many years. Then I became a senior pastor. But all the while I was a senior pastor, for 25 years I was president of a school and dealt with all the problems that go along with being the president of a private Christian institution. I can tell you, I can tell you, that young people, when they have independence from their parents, especially in the automotive realm, without authority over them and accountability over them, many times, not always, but many times, get in trouble. I, I can't tell you how many times that has 
come into my office because of that kind of a situation. And we've had to ship a child, a young person, a teenager from our school. I remember Al Scott, he's still alive and his wife is over here. Al Scott and I driving to a party that we had heard about and I'm crawling through the bushes looking for the kids that were getting drunk. And they were out meeting somewhere. That wouldn't have happened if they didn't have automotive independence. And I remember crawling through the bushes and trying to catch them, thinking, I didn't sign up for this when I became a pastor and the president of a school. I didn't know this was part of the job description. Ungoverned, youthful independence without accountability doesn't produce maturity, but the tyranny of the flesh. Independence, autonomy doesn't produce maturity, it produces tyranny to the flesh. Many parents have been pummeled by their young person, by their teenagers saying, when they say, no, you can't go there, or no, you're, you're not allowed to do that, or no, you can't have the car keys, or no, you're not going with those people, they say, why? Don't you trust me? You know what the wise answer to that is? I don't trust your flesh. Matter of fact, I don't even trust my own flesh. And you better learn not to trust your flesh as well. That would be the wise answer. Because our flesh, it takes a long time to discipline and to submit it to the Holy Spirit and to grow in the maturity and be led by the Spirit and to obey God. That doesn't happen overnight. So none of us should trust our flesh. Romans 13, 1 says, and I know the context is, Romans chapter 13 is talking to us about our relationship to government, but Romans 13, 1 still applies. Let every soul be subject to the governing authority. And in the home, there's a governing authority. It's called mom and dad. Let every soul be subject to governing authority, for there is no authority except that which is ordained by God. God ordained parents to have authority over their children. That's not to be ogres, that's not to be mean, that's not to be authoritarian and disciplinarian, you know, crazy, but to be an authority because they have experience and they have wisdom and they know their own flesh. Giving young people unrestricted, unmonitored independence is not a sign of parental love, it's a sign of parental dereliction. Yeah, yeah, just go. Just take off. Do whatever you want to do. That's not a sign of parental love. That's a sign of parental dereliction, dereliction of duty. Cars are not evil. Cell phones are not sinful. Gathering with a group of friends isn't necessarily wrong. But when there is no oversight, when there is no accountability, any of these situations can lead to sad life-altering consequences. Your child, whether he be 6 or 16, needs the help of your discernment in his life. Teach him to appreciate that, to seek that discernment and wisdom. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 written in the context of pastors in relation to the church, says this, Obey those who have the rule over you and be submissive, for they watch for your souls. Young people here today, your parents want the best for you. 
They watch for your soul. They don't want to see you mess up your life. They don't want to see you fall into sin and alter the trajectory of your entire life. They watch for your soul. Love them and appreciate them. Be confident of your God-given authority as a parent. We don't know it all. We're going to make mistakes along the way, but we have a God-breathed book that gives us direction, and we can steep ourselves in it and ask God for wisdom. So be confident of your God-given authority as a parent. Be conscious of your desperate need for God's wisdom and direction. Keep your home pure. Keep your home pure. Don't invite things in your home that are going to propagandize and fight against the very things that you're saying to your children. All flesh, your child's flesh or your flesh, can easily descend into moral depravity. And I can give you a thousand examples. So be careful with all the influencers, not just people, but influencers, all the influencers that come into your young person's life, if ever a parent should be watchful, it's in this day and in this hour about the influences. The Bible says your children are a heritage from the Lord, Psalm 127. That means an inheritance. You have an inheritance from the Lord, and it's called your child. Ultimately, though, they belong to him, and we must rear them accordingly. This is God's gift to me, and it's a transition period where I'm to train them for God and launch them out on their own. Matter of fact, that psalm goes on in the next two verses, Psalm 127, 4 and 5, to describe children as arrows. Like arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are the children of the family. Arrows go where we cannot go. They extend our influence, maybe we would say. And they're a sacred trust. And we're to teach them according to God's word, not by society's standards or even our own whims, by the way, but by God's word. We have no more valuable asset. We have no more potential-laden endeavor than that of parenting. We have no more worthwhile investment of our time, energy, and prayers than our children. And it doesn't end really when they leave the home necessarily. You've heard me say, I think one of the hardest parts of parenting is parenting adult children. Because the only thing you can do is pray and talk to them. When they're little, you got a lot more control. So let's not relinquish our job, our responsibility, our authority. Let's not allow the world to come into our home and brainwash what we're trying to teach our children. And let's not let these disorders develop in our home. It's a big job. We look to God. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. We admit it openly that this is a big, big task. We feel like Manoah and wife that we're desperately seeking your help. How do we rear this child? We, we want him to influence the nation. We want him to be pure. Lord, you help us. And we pray for the heart, the spirit, the soul of our young people, that they'd see that we love them, 
that we're not perfect, but we have their best interest in mind as we lay down the law, as we talk about the rules of our home, as we talk about privileges and the incumbent responsibilities. May they understand and may they gladly submit to their parents and love them because they care for them. Give us homes. We know as I started off today, Lord, reading the statistics that what is going on in our nation is directly tied to the home, to the family. Without a strong family, we can't have a strong church. Without strong families and churches, we can't have a strong nation. And so we ask for grace. We ask for your help. We ask for your blessing. Help these parents and these grandparents, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.